Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman. And I'm Lara Chan Baker. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast from the Jackie Winter Group. We're a creative production and representation studio based in Melbourne and New York City. This podcast is an opportunity for our two studios to come together each week and provide insight into the creative industry from our unique point of view as the bridge between clients and creatives. Using the internet as our lens, we help to explore a variety of current events, opinions, and tools to provide thought-provoking conversation for anyone whose job it is to bring creative things to life. Remember that this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this using the Pocket Cast, Overcast, or Castro podcatchers, you can directly link to the articles discussed here as well as get enhanced visual content as we move along. This season, we're rolling on with our extended open tabs segments that you know and love. This week, we delve into blockchain artwork, copyright reform, and doing nothing. Um, and I should mention that this is the final episode of our second season, and we go away, and we go away for kind of two weeks, and we go on a spirit quest and kind Vacay. of look deeply into our souls of what we're going to bring to you for season three. So if you have any comments, you know, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at podcast at JackieWinter.com. Let us know what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear hear less of even if it's just hearing less laura that's fine you're wow. in a safe space you can you can talk freely in you absolutely email. cannot i am coming for you we want to hear from you much like our irl open tabs events which you can find out more about at opentabs.rodeo we are digging deep into our jw network of amazing people to contribute their own link and thoughts to each episode and today we are absolutely delighted to welcome karan singh to the studio as this week's special guest Karan is a multidisciplinary artist and illustrator from Sydney, Australia. He attended the University of Sydney, Australia and Malmo University in Sweden, where his studies in interaction design influenced an interest in combining new media with visual art. His distinct work is a contemporary and playful reinterpretation of the op art movement, merged with the bold compositions, colors, and sensibilities of mid-century graphic design. Over the past decade, he spent time living in Melbourne, New York, Tokyo, and now Amsterdam, where he currently calls home. Now, whether you know it or not, you've probably seen his signature work somewhere in the world as he's collaborated with pretty much every major brand and cultural institution there is, from Nike and Apple to Sagmeister Walsh and the band OK Go. We are super excited to have him here today to go through our open tabs. Karan, welcome to the podcast. Hello. It's great to be hey. here. Karan, we're so happy to have you. How's Amsterdam? What's going on over there? It's good. It's so hot, um, which is such a, I feel really bad even saying that because I know you guys are freezing right now. Um, yeah, it's been like torrential rain and like sort of crazy winds today, although we are sweating it up in the hot box for the recording <laughs> as usual. Yeah, it's it's very similar to that, but uh, it's kind of a little different to what everybody described um, Amsterdam would be before we moved here. So it's a lot hotter than we were expecting, a lot less rain than we were expecting. Is everyone just high all the time? So high. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. But it is kind of just like one of those like unofficial scents that you're just welcome back to every because every time I leave, you know, it, it, you forget it and then you kind of step back into the city and you're like the haze. <laughs> it is a haze. It's the <laughs> the Amsterdam haze. And what's contributing to your amazing sound quality this morning as well? Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> you really threw me under the bus there, huh? Um, I'm Harry Potter style today. I'm in the cupboard under the stairs. It's uh, it's got great acoustics. Um, it really, really does. This is a hot recording tip for anyone who produces a <laughs> podcast. Like, seriously, get in the cupboard. 
I mean, look, otherwise it would have been just so loud because I live on I live on like a, a busier street. I'm just saying that. I just wanted to record in the cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to be Harry Potter. We all do. Jeremy, should we get started? We should get started. And I think you are going to get us kicked off today, actually, with a link about um, art on the blockchain, two of our favorite topics from the last year. Almost. Absolutely. Yes. So today I, I want to talk about a few things. This is um, it was spurred by a thing called Crypto Canvas, which I'll get into in a bit. Um, but just, you know, for some context, Crypto Canvas is this sort of next stage in the evolution of blockchain-based artwork platforms, uh, following in the footsteps of things like CryptoKitties, CryptoPunks, uh, Place, Data, and Rare. Uh, and I imagine that for a lot of people listening, what I am saying is already complete gibberish. So um, let's just take a very quick step back. Do either of you guys know anything about blockchain or perhaps even about CryptoKitties or Data or any of the other things I just mentioned? We did a, we did kind of a few episodes here, kind of going over some of the fundamentals and um, and some other kind of bits and pieces of you know where there is intersection between kind of art and kind of crypto. But exactly, yeah. so yeah, if you do want to hear us wax on about blockchain, you can go back to episode twenty of the podcast um, where we did cover this in detail. But as a very very basic explanation, blockchain is the technology that underpins digital currencies like Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, so on. Um, and basically, it's just this decentralized digital ledger that allows information to be distributed but not copied, which means that each individual piece of data can only have one owner. And without getting into any of the sticky details, this ledger is fully verifiable and the history of the transactions it records are unable to be changed. So basically, it's a way of tracking things that's highly secure and incorruptible. um, And that's really all you need to know in order for us to chat about uh, Crypto Canvas. So In addition to currencies, a multitude of other things have been built based on this advent of the blockchain system. And what we're particularly interested in is how it affects the creation and distribution of artworks. And I could literally talk about this all day because this has been just an insane area of growth lately that I've become completely enveloped in reading about. But I know that we've got other links to get to, so I will try and hurry the hell up. But before we get to Crypto Canvas, I want to chat briefly about a few of these other platforms that I've mentioned. So um, let's begin with CryptoPunks. Uh, this is the project that really started the crypto art movement. Um, so in June 2017, the team at Lava Labs released uh, basically 10,000 unique characters, any of which could be claimed for free by anybody with an Ethereum wallet. Uh, and all of them were quickly claimed. And now if you want one, you have to purchase it from someone on the CryptoPunks marketplace. And they sell for all sorts of prices. So just a couple of days in, one sold for the equivalent of like three and a half thousand US dollars. More recently, one sold for 16,000 US dollars. Um, and all proof of ownership is stored on the Ethereum blockchain. And so one of the key things to note here is that once Lava Labs released the coding for the platform onto the blockchain, it became permanently embedded there and it can no longer be modified by anyone. So the people who created and coded the whole thing now actually have zero control over the code that is running CryptoPunks. And this is really sort of the most powerful feature of the blockchain system and the whole thing to really wrap your head around it. It cannot be forged or messed with in any way, which is, you know, in the case of CryptoPunks means that you can verify that there are indeed only 10,000 punks. Um, No one from Lava Labs can actually access any of the money or even any of the characters unless they happen to own them. Uh, And anyone can verify that any of the facts that they list about the code are true. So then inspired by CryptoPunks, you get CryptoKitties, which is basically just what it sounds like. It was launched in late 2017. CryptoKitties is a blockchain-based virtual game developed by Axiom Zen that allows players to purchase, collect, 
breed and sell various types of virtual cats, which sounds completely insane. And, it, and it, I mean, it is. Um, it actually got so popular, though, at one point that it crashed the Ethereum network. Um, and again, each CryptoKitty is unique. It's owned by the user, validated through the blockchain, and its value can appreciate or depreciate based on the market. Um, and after you buy a cat, you can sell it or you can breed it, um, which basically is people do in an attempt to bring out more unique and sort of therefore more valuable traits. So the <laughs> biggest, seriously though, get this, the biggest crypto kitty sale so far was made in May for the equivalent of 140,000 US dollars um, for a single character, right? Like that's totally nuts. And all sorts of crazy stuff has been done with crypto kitties, including um, this one guy who sold his unique kitty for like over $75,000 and then donated the money to a charity. Um, and even WikiLeaks, uses crypto kitties to raise funds for itself, which is nutso. And then lastly, around the same time as CryptoPunks was released, Reddit hosted a uh, collaborative project and, and social experiment called Place. Um, and Jeremy, you were the one who alerted me to this, but basically it involved this online canvas of 1 million pixels, which users could edit by changing the color of a single pixel, choosing from this sort of limited 16 color palette. And it was ended 72 hours later after more than 1 million unique users had edited the canvas, placing like 16 million tiles or something. And, yeah, then, and if you can find the, we'll place links to this, but the, the, we will. the stop motion um, kind of video of w watching it being created is amazing and the whole story behind it as like you know people got together to kind of take it over oh yeah and... everything i'm mentioning here is like a, please please dive deeper into it because it's fascinating i am limiting myself okay this brings us to sort of crypto canvas and stuff so you've got these platforms like um rare and data um that basically kind of function almost like traditional galleries or auction houses in the sense that you can sort of buy artworks that would more traditionally be considered art rather than these sort of crypto kitties or you know little tokens or whatever they, these are sort of more traditional looking artworks but of course again these are blockchain enabled marketplaces and they're dealing exclusively in digital artworks um and lastly there are sort of platforms like Messina's, i think which we god knows how to pronounce it but we actually covered it on an yes. earlier episode of the podcast which is using blockchain technology to actually sell shares in physical works of incredibly valuable fine art and there's all sorts of amazing pieces about how you can sort of um, authenticate fine art, existing physical fine art with blockchain. But all of this brings us to Crypto Canvas. And the idea behind Crypto Canvas is a limited set of 48 by 48 pixel artworks that are created pixel by pixel by the public. So you can paint as many pixels as you want on any available canvas. And the more that you paint, the bigger the share of the painting you get, the share of its worth. So after all the pixels have been set, the canvas is basically put up for auction and anyone can make a bid. And once a winning bid has been placed, 96.1% um, uh, from that auction is distributed to the painters and the rest, I guess, to the company. I think they take a, a small cut at the start. Um, so, you know, let's say you painted half of the canvas, you would get 50% of 96.1%, which is just way too much math for me, but, you know, you get the gist. Um, and then every time after that, when the canvas is traded, the painters get 6.1% of that transaction value. So um, basically it's this sort of ongoing way to have a shared ownership of this, you know, collaboratively created artwork. And paintings also can only be bought with Ether, the digital currency. Um, and interestingly, I thought I would love to note that the owner of a finished canvas, um, so whoever, you know, won it in the bidding phase, holds all copyright to the canvas. So if they sell the canvas to someone else, then the copyright passes to the new owner. Um, but basically there's no copyright held by the people who created the the pixels or whatever. Um, and we've all grown up with the concept that digital stuff is ephemeral, that it can be wiped off your hard drive or copied infinitely. But blockchain for the first time allows us to create 
digital scarcity, which really kind of tips this whole idea on its head. And CryptoPunks and CryptoKitties and CryptoCanvas are all responses to this sort of growing vanguard of enthusiasts who are uh, curious about blockchain's pretty novel potential to affix value to digital art, making it rare and unreplicable and therefore collectible. And honestly, I guess I'm I'm actually pretty excited about these early days of this sort of platform. Like I, I do think we actually might be witnessing the very, very beginning of the dawn of a new age. And, and I think to me, the whole thing feels a lot like the early days of the web when people were sort of toying around making silly websites that were the precursors to these sort of very legitimate and serious sites that populate the web now. Um, and my question for you guys is whether you think there is any value in owning a piece that is purely digital. And do you think that traditional perceptions of, of physical ownership can shift enough to actually give these pieces values sort of as an original? No. Next link. Jeremy <laughs> <laughs> Watson. <laughs> Oh, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I, if we haven't lost, like, you know, our total audience yet, like, with these kind of concepts, like, it's just kind of lost. Are you kidding me? It's so interesting. I don't know. Like, it's you're I, an old man, Jeremy. I am. I am an old man. I, I immediately do not trust and dislike things that I do. Not, I cannot understand or fit into my, you know, ever increasing limited worldview. When you know, we were kind of talking about ANSI art the other week, and like, you know, how you know, that art form was kind of elevated through kind of a limited palette. Where like, I see the artistic merit in the idea of these projects but the actual kind of expressions of them like that they seem to be kind of secondary it's kind of like well let's kind of develop this kind of canvas and like this whole kind of thing is interesting but then the actual kind of content isn't great and like yeah like i, I feel a bit kind of so what about when it plays into just like other digital artworks like any of the digital artworks that we work with on a daily basis not these like pixel by pixel artworks <laughs> like if you know you could own a digital quran piece for example i think that you know that is really still like the holy grail and kind of in lots of ways in terms of how to kind of ascribe that kind of value and ascribe that kind of connection to the creator. And I think having that is interesting, but I think it involves participation of artists in that way. What I'm kind of seeing is just the whole crypto world really kind of being sparked by these people who aren't in, inherently kind of artists or creative kind of in the traditional way, um, you know, and trying to kind of create this platform but without getting the actual kind of involvement or buying kind of, of artists at the same See, time. See, I don't, I, I don't agree. I think maybe in initially, yes, this stuff is coming from Silicon Valley, not from, from artists. But, um, but I think like, if you actually start to look into this, artists all over the world are starting to embrace this stuff. And there's like all this insane sort of um, these auctions and these platforms and stuff that are, that are bubbling up with this sort of and, and I think it's like a wave that is actually happening I kind of see where both of you are coming from because I think on one hand what Jeremy's saying is kind of it's like if I don't fully understand it then I think that there's this huge bridge to gap between you know potential you know sellers and, and collectors but I think you know when I was kind of going through the website I couldn't really understand how I would be able to display or view the work that was involved. Like a lot of time was obviously spent um, explaining how the work would be sold and what the breakdown was on percentages and, and things like that. But it just felt like the art was just um, an interchangeable element in this kind of formula. Uh, and it didn't really feel, yeah, it didn't feel like the art was inherently a kind of important part of this whole process like you could kind of substitute mm. with the art with a lot of different things yeah that's a really good point like with tokens or so, just anything exactly that, it yeah. could be anything and it's almost like creating using art as kind of let's call it a stock in this case and how can we manufacture stocks oh okay let's get people to make art and then kind of 
add value to these things and then use them almost like as trading cards in this case. But mm. I think associating it with the term art um, is still kind of, it evokes something still really physical or spatial for me. So I want to be able to interact with the art, um, you know, in, in a fairly traditional way. And maybe this is kind of very old school and this will change, but I still think about the art in the context of a room. I still think about the scale of art. Um, and for me, it was still very much about how does the art actually play into this? When do I actually get to see the art that I'm paying for? It's great that all these people have contributed to it, but as someone who's also buying it, um, there's still that kind of connection with the art that obviously I, I don't really, I don't, I don't feel like they've explained it as as well in this idea. And I think that maybe if they can kind of tweak that idea, then it could be a little bit more relevant. But I do think there's a lot more potential in this idea. Um, you know, if you were to substitute art as the subject to, you know, something else, like maybe it's kind of an open source application that a bunch of people contribute to and then um, kind of sell. A completely, completely valid point. I like, I, I definitely agree with you in those sort of circumstances. And I think that's why they, I get particularly interested as well now seeing, I think people have come across that sort of issue in that question. And now people are trying to blend sort of blockchain technology and blockchain authentication with physical pieces of art. And that's probably where I think there's like, at least like sooner this sort of thing will actually take sort of more mainstream because a lot of the auction houses and stuff are actually interested in that because there's a huge problem with with replicas and tracing tracing artwork. It's, I mean, like, doesn't like Donald Trump have a fake Renoir? Like, it's crazy, <laughs> you know? So like, um, I'm not surprised to see them sort of coming on board there. You know, it, it's very interesting. You could, you could argue that the whole art world as well is all about kind of subjectively ascribing value, you know, to different work. And the crypto world is kind of no different in that there it, it is kind of this complete, you know, speculative market on kind of, you know, relying on the hype of everyone else. And I think that whole thing with CryptoKitties and CryptoPunks, as I was just looking at before, it just kind of seemed like it was more, like, I don't know, like, I didn't see what was so interesting about those pieces that would want me to own them. But I think the idea that someone paid a huge amount of money for it is like why people are like, are into it more. Like it's kind of seen as this kind of get rich quick thing in kind of some ways, but, but yeah. I think maybe perhaps the appeal as well is that like for people that do think that this kind of technology is going to go somewhere, perhaps there is value in owning one of the first pieces from this you know wave like that could be incredibly valuable later i'm i'm like i'm kind of anticipating this like really dystopian future where um you know artwork is viewed uh for a night like on a screen and someone's paid the license to view like the original kind of first internet artwork that you know this kind of first digital artwork that was made <laughs> and that's kind of how people license the work and make kind of money off of it side note we're doing a radio play for sure based on that idea. <laughs> Next season, tune in. The only kind of parallel I would maybe draw is, is you know, maybe 10 years ago where I was first starting out and, and um, you know, kind of had these very, very idealistic views about what art should be and what art is and, and kind of working as a digital artist, there was always this complex about whether what you created with a computer was actually justified as art, you know, in comparison to what uh, traditionalists might believe is art. And I think that from that kind of angle, I want to, I want to see something like this succeed just because, you know, we've kind of gotten to a point now where digital art is, is, you know, rightly so being, being considered as, as good as, um, as kind of traditional art. But yeah, I think it is, like you say, one of those things that it could go either way, but I also don't want to naysay it this early on because we don't really know <laughs> how good it could be. 
Like people who thought the telephone would never catch on. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm so kind of, you know, just... Jeremy's still those... mad about the phone being a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll move on from there. The next link for the week um, is something that I have picked, and these this is a bit of a double header. Um, once again, this link comes to me from my dad. My dad just a phenomenal source of links. Just keeps them coming. I think, you know... Should he replace you on the show? You know, maybe he could. I think he... Actually, your dad and my dad, that'd be great. Just, just full, full dad all the time. I yeah, why not? Bianca's dad. dad. He's, He's really into me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Keep that in the pocket. Um, so this is a piece of a recent um, court ruling from California um, where basically artists had kind of been involved. And when I, I say artists, I'm kind of referring to a group of seven mostly kind of fine artists who have been caught up in a legal process um, with this law that basically gives artists royalties every time their work is sold, basically. And they're, you know, after kind of seven years, um, the courts determined that, well, actually, um, no, that is not like not legal. They don't have to kind of do this anymore. So I wanted to bring this article up alongside the same time that um, the copyright modernization consultation has been going on here in Australia, which has been a really kind of long-winded process where effectively the federal government has been consulting um, the rest the country and beyond about um, potential changes to our copyright law. And one kind of specific point that is mentioned in the New York Times article is that Australia um, does have this law uh, that passes on royalties um, to fine artists every time their work is sold. And oh man, just this brings up so many different kind of conflicting opinions for me. Um, I think especially because so much of our own work and our business is kind of tied to, you know, the it, a lot of our work is kind of tied to royalties and licensing fees and all these other things that we kind of talk about a lot. Um, but yeah, particularly, I guess I want to open up to you first, Laura. Um, obviously, this article relates more to fine artists, but royalties are something we deal with here all the time. Do you think there's any kind of overlapping concerns to the commercial art world like with this with this kind of ruling? I I mean, look, this is really interesting. I have to admit, I had pretty limited knowledge on these laws. I knew that some countries, including Australia, did have resoil laws in place, but I haven't paid a huge amount of attention to them as I don't really deal in fine art. And what I couldn't really figure out is how this actually plays into commercial work. Like, are the laws relevant at all commercially? Well, that's the that's the interesting thing. And I think the the law here is that I think the the biggest winner here are the auction houses who are really kind of responsible for passing on, you know, a percentage of the fees to the artists every time that they kind of sold. And basically, um, with this ruling, it means they didn't have to do that. So they were kind of very happy about it. But it's also kind of really interesting as well, because whenever we're talking about work, we're never talking about the, you know, the work itself, the actual original artwork, in most cases that our artists um, presents or that they develop, especially because nine out of 10 times it's digital artwork, um, doesn't really have much kind of value. So it's like the actual kind of file really doesn't have the value. It's the license that we grant the client of how they can kind of use the work. That's kind of where the value is. So this is the complete kind of inverse of it, where it's all about the original work that has the most kind of value. And therefore, every time that's kind of passed on, yeah, what is the case that someone should be getting, you know, because it's for their own personal enjoyment. At the same time, like I think there are in Australia, I think there's some more cultural and political um, things to consider, especially because the the readings that I've done over in this locally have been more about Aboriginal artwork so that, you know, it's really important to have these laws in place to kind of keep that industry sustainable and to keep these kind of, um, you know, to keep these artists and their communities kind of afloat as well. And yes, there's lots of sort of cited examples of works having uh, uh, works by Indigenous Australian artists. Um, 
you know, being sold for like very low prices and then selling, you know, on the open market later at like record breaking fees and how, um, you know, those sorts of instances have been the prime uh, push behind the kind of resale laws in Australia. But yeah, I mean, I really like I was trying to 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 do my research here and I like won't uh, name specific things, but there have been cases where, for example, a commercial artist has signed over copyright to someone for a, a commercial piece that they've created and then they have then sold that on to you know let's say a similar company in another country to use in their campaign or whatever and in those cases would the artist be owed money or not that's what I'm not sure I think you know if Chuck Close is selling a painting to somebody I would assume that they don't have they don't own the copyright to that image like they may own the actual kind of painting but they would not be able to then kind of commercialize that kind of painting i mean i i would need to kind of i, I assume that every kind of auction or every art sale would kind of have to include this in kind of some way well i just drew up a letter of authenticity for some prints that we did for for um for a charity auction and i included on the letter of authenticity that you know, the artist still retains, Karan, it's one of your pieces, <laughs> um, that the artist retains all copyright, you know, like that obviously they own this particular limited edition print, but the artist retains all copyright of the actual work itself. That's why I kind of think this is such an interesting two sides of one coin situation where it's like, well, if the real kind of value of the work for these fine art pieces comes in the ownership, then it makes sense that every time that ownership is changed, that there should be, you know, some kind of, you know, fee passed on. We're just like every time a, a piece of work is kind of relicensed, that creates kind of additional value there. I'm not saying kind of that value proposition is the same for personal enjoyment and commercial exploitation, but it's a real interesting thing to think about. Um, Karan, what is your opinion on this? I don't know. I can kind of see it, you know, in a really basic way from both sides uh, of, of the kind of field, because on one side, um, in a kind of really general way, if someone thinks they're buying a piece of art, you know, they and they're kind of not familiar with the, the kind of industry, then they might just think that, okay, this is kind of a one-time transaction and uh, this is mine now in the same way that they'd, you know, buy a car. But on the flip side, it's not that simple. I think that there's a lot more that comes with, you know, uh, you know selling an artwork. And it it's one of those things that you'd hope that it would increase in value for the sake of the artist as well. And I think that the artist is still quite intrinsically connected to the artwork because, you know, based on their clout and, and how much more prolific they become and, and so on, I think that, you know, it's, it's still quite a speculative stock in that way. And I, I think in some ways it also kind of relates to what we were talking about before with kind of crypto and, and how the value of work kind of changes. But I think in this case, I, I can't help but side with the artist just because of everything you've mentioned is like there's, there's so many things that are associated with it. There's so much more intangible value um, that comes with the artwork and owning it that I think it's it's too much to just say okay well this is just for for the whole thing um, I think that this it's far too speculative to just draw a line under it like that yeah, look, I think it's a fascinating insight into a part of the business that we kind of deal with every day, but at the same time, we'll probably never deal with at that level. You know, like we're never going to know what it's kind of like when you're dealing with these kind of multi-million dollar pieces yeah, of absolutely. work. So it's interesting to get like kind of that bit of insight. At the same time, though, like, I don't know, I, I feel like I understand why the auction houses are against it because they don't want to have to manage selling, you know, passing on those fees and stuff. But I think, you know, for anyone who is an art enthusiast or art collector, they should, you know, I, I imagine they would have also a vested interest in 
caring for artists and I don't know, but who well, knows? That's, I mean, that's one point that they go into towards the end of the article about kind of, you know, when they can't, if when they can't find the artists as well and how mm. then, you know, that goes kind of to another body that kind of distributes that. And that kind of goes into a larger part of one of the more contentious points of this um, modernization consultation, which is around kind of orphan works, around works that, you know, that people can't locate the authors to or, or can't be bothered to locate the authors to and, and who kind of owns that. I think this is one of the most fascinating websites I've kind of read all year. And like, it's kind of one of these kind of treasure troves, very similar, Laura, to when you pulled out those, um, was it the NSA posters? That oh, kind of, yeah. Yes. So I think look, my favorite thing on the internet, this is, um, oh my God. And also this is so ironic. The Australian Government Department of Communication and the Arts, something has happened at one stage with the kerning and placement of the letters like, in the logo, which literally looks like, like someone was drunk when they kind of typeset it. But like, so, it's obviously something has happened at some point in the pipeline. Oh, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, it's really messed up. Like, I, I can't tell if it's like an Easter egg or something, but yeah, it's hilarious. I don't bad. think it's on no, purpose. It's definitely not on purpose, but it just makes it it's all the, the more It's the government, funny. of course it's not. Anyway, the most interesting thing, I mean, this is a huge deal um, in terms of what Australia is trying to do in terms of effectively modernize the copyright law because what copyright is supposed to do and what it was intended to do at one time, um, specifically the Copyright Act of 1968, is obviously radically different to kind of where it is now. And I think, you know, for what it's worth, this is a phenomenal illustration of just governing in action. And I think anyone who deals with kind of art, licensing, copyright at all, really owes it to themselves to take a few hours to kind of go through and get a real kind of understanding of this. Now, I do give them credit for um, for trying to take the material, which is pretty dry stuff and very complicated, and putting it into, you know, some really, um, I guess, not easy to read, but kind of easy to digest documentations. I would start with the copyright modernization consultation paper, which kind of goes through and says like, well, these are kind of the options that we have kind of for reform. And these are kind of the questions that we're asking. And then there's a bunch of kind of roundtables that they did, which kind of raise even more questions. Um, and then, you know, they had this kind of open for about 107 days where anyone could make a kind of a formal submission and kind of answer these questions that they posed. And they also sought out particular organizations, like the opinions of particular organizations. Indeed. And what kind of has resulted in this is about 100 um, PDFs that are all freely available to download and read, um, all kind of giving you these kind of two sides of the story, um, mostly actually kind of somewhere in the middle. Like some people have some very kind of set views. And it was amazing that you could kind of actually have this kind of access where um, if you go to the fourth or fifth page, you can actually download, you know, Google's response. And it's so amazing to read kind of Google's response about how they really kind of see um, the copyright laws at the moment being very restrictive for them really to develop their AI technology. Microsoft's and, response was the same. And, and so, and but then it's also fascinating to look at someone like the AOI, the Association of Illustrators, who we talk about a lot, but they're effectively a, um, you know, I think the strongest body out there that's most relevant to our work um, for illustrators. But there's music publishers here, there's the ABC, there's a million different voices. And so I found, you know, obviously looking at the AOI to kind of read their submission first to see what was kind of most relevant. But you can, this is relevant for any creative. And I guess I don't want to go into the actual kind of details too much of what's actually being proposed here. I think that the main point that's being consider right now is how Australia deals with fair use. Um, and specifically, you know, America, there's an American system and there's a UK system. Um, and then Australia has something kind of called fair dealing. And yeah, like that kind of advantages and disadvantages kind of certain people. Yeah, it's really interesting to kind of see so boldly 
and plainly where everyone's kind of interests kind of lie in this argument and why. Completely. Admittedly, I didn't read all the um, documentation on the things being proposed. I just read responses because that was the interesting part. Um, and basically every response that I read did come from like pretty clear financial interest in securing certain laws. Like, you know, the galleries wanted art and educational institutions to be accepted from certain rules and artist bodies wanted all the laws to be stricter and those in the position of like owning a lot of content like Foxtel uh, were definitely against like fair use laws and so on. And um, I also agree that like, uh, so I read Microsoft, so I didn't read Google's, but it sounds like they were quite similar. Like um, it was really interesting that they focused exclusively on um, text and data mining and copyrighted works and how much of a role that plays in the development and, and improvement of AI technologies, which um, was an aspect of copyright laws that I hadn't even begun to consider again what they do point out which i agree with is that like there actually is kind of not a lot of connection between copyright and text and data mining like it, it might be necessary to make copies of information to train ai um so it can analyze the material but this sort of information isn't read by humans or consumed or redistributed for um creative expression or anything so it, it's kind of a bit different but anyway so much to dive into here karan did you get anything out of this i was kind of fascinated at the kind of process of this and and how how kind of blatant everybody like makes their intentions here it's it, that was kind of really interesting for me um but i think in terms of the the nitty gritty i had a lot of trouble kind of following a, a lot of what was going on in terms of uh, i guess um the process and 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 what this effectively means and i think that there's a lot to be said about simplifying a lot of the messaging here kind of what jeremy was mentioning earlier about it's typical government like <laughs> speak for sure it's super convoluted but it's yeah it's, it's again this is just i i just think with all of these kind of issues like they're like with what the internet like the internet has just brought so much more kind of complexity to things so it's like yeah like i want better like i want better ai and i want kind of better search results but like at the same time like i don't want like someone to say like oh i'm going to take this uh, piece of quran's work here and use it for this kind of campaign because I deem this to be kind of fair use and you know because I'm a I'm a multi-million dollar company like you have to kind of then come and defend your copyright rather like the onus is on you know you to kind of to do that so it is it is tricky I feel like we end half our segments like that like we don't know <laughs> we, uh, yeah tricky. exactly we don't know we really <laughs> figure it out <laughs> but I, I I I love the fact that it's here and if you want to kind of educate yourself like on it like you know the resources kind of are there I really yeah, as much as it's convoluted Government transparency is interesting when it happens and it's worth taking a look. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, we will post the links to all of this as we do every week on our show notes. But before we wrap up, Karan, you have the final link of the day. Um, I really enjoyed this piece. I'd love for you to talk a bit more about what it is, where you found it. Um, and I'm just kind of curious as well, more in kind of general, like, you know, how much is the of the internet is or kind of reading the internet as part of your practice and where do you tend to find things? I I think I found this on Twitter of all places. I'm kind of a, like a, a serial Twitter lurker. I don't really uh, contribute a whole lot, um, but I'm kind of just one of those people who's, uh, I don't know, I, I, I use it as my kind of source for reading material because I think that, um, yeah, it's kind of really up to date and I'm obsessed with politics as well so it kind of gives you you're the perfect person to have here in bianca's absence because that is exactly <laughs> what she says <laughs> i am like obsessed with uh with politics both like us and australian politics so it, it kind of gives me the most kind of well-rounded view and i try to follow you know people from different views as, as much as possible um but this was a nice change of pace for me um this is a, an article uh that was posted by zat rana 
uh, on Medium. And Zart writes for on, on behalf of uh, his resource called designluck.com. Um, but I was really drawn in by just this really clickbaity <laughs> headline, which is the most important skill nobody taught you. And I was like, cool, I've got time to kill. Let's read this. Um, but it, it's so it's a, it's a little over a month old. Uh, and um, it was really interesting. Uh, was, you know, Rana starts talking about uh, Pascal, who's the the famous like physicist and and um, mathematician uh both my favorite things in school and uh yeah we we would not have hung out (laughs) Karan. no no least favorite is what i actually meant um but it was no it was really interesting because he he started talking about his um he started talking about pascal and how he started writing these bodies of work about faith and belief which i just thought was really interesting because you know, for someone working at, you know, the forefront of maths and physics, it would have been kind of an interesting dilemma to have um, on one hand, you know, where you're kind of, you know, really obsessed with faith and God and, and so on. So he starts kind of making these observations in, in, in a really interesting paper. And he, in this case, Pascal, talks about how humans fear silence and dread boredom. Which, um, which is really, really interesting, I guess, considering our digital kind of obsessions nowadays. And there's some really apt and like almost prophetic quotes that um, the author pulls out uh, from Pascal's work. And one of my favorites is, uh, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone, which just hit a nerve with me because I can't do that nowadays to save my life. I can't just sit there um, and be content. Um, but kind of Rana moves on to to talk about how these ideas parallel you know Pascal's ideas from you know long ago parallel with everything that's going on nowadays with our kind of contemporary conveniences and ultimately saying that we are the slaves to our biggest accomplishment which in this case is just to be connected to be connected to everybody constantly and he takes it just a step further by saying that this kind of attachment to connectivity is has almost built up this aversion or allergy to to being alone. And he asks this really kind of really interesting innocuous question, which is like, why be alone when you never have to be? Which just reminded me of Blade Runner completely. It just it seems <laughs> like it just seemed like a product that you might be able to buy uh, in this kind of you know existential future where it's like why you know why be alone when you never have to be one of the things that I learned the most about myself was was that uh, was kind of being comfortable being alone and this kind of happened the most when I lived in Tokyo because there um, you know it's really really common to eat by yourself and it was something I've always been really self-conscious about just um, it's the best you don't have to share any of your food it is so good but it's it's almost this like this uh this little window of meditation that you get in the day um and it would kind of be part of my daily ritual there where i would just kind of go and i would work and then go have lunch and just eat in a booth by myself and just be alone and not use a device either um and that was just something that was just so kind of intrinsically related to their culture as well just because generally speaking a lot of people eat out but I don't know, I just found these really interesting kind of similarities between um, kind of really, you know, bad digital habits and also some of the really interesting things that I've learned um, just from travel and and now kind of trying to unlearn as well. I don't know how it kind of sat with you guys. Do you find that you're 
constantly connected or are you able to switch off as easily? Because I think that what I found when I've tried to just disconnect easily and have that kind of downtime is that I'm constantly reaching for my phone or I'm constantly um, trying to think of something to to make. Um, have you guys kind of managed to harness the, the, the stimulant that is boredom? Yeah, I mean, I was in, again, in two minds completely with this because like part of me felt like, shit, this really, this does hit home. And the other part of me felt like that this is taking itself way too seriously and like everyone needs to calm down. Um, and like, but I, I kept going back and forward between the two. And I think part of the reason is that I am actually, I'm quite comfortable. I'm comfortable being alone without a thing to do. Like I'm, I'm really comfortable sitting with my own thoughts. Um, maybe that's like, I have a very like crazy brain. So maybe that's why I'm never, I'm never alone because <laughs> of all the other personalities. Um, but I, uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I found it, I found it tricky. I think there is the funny thing for me about the article is that it was this talking about this, you know, like we can't disconnect and blah blah blah. At the same time, this is an article on Medium that everyone's coming online to talk about together, and it's like this, it was a really interesting, valid conversation that people were clearly getting a lot out of. Like I was reading the comments, and people loved this, and I was like, well, you're able to do this because we're all online talking about this together. But also that, like, yeah, that he's really just paraphrasing like something that somebody came up with a very long time ago in a much more kind of you know detailed book. Like you can't read Pascal's writing in a six minute kind of scroll. I think it's completely, it's a good thing for people to do that because there are a lot of people that wouldn't have access to or have the knowledge to or the ability to read Pascal's works if they weren't sort of condensed like this into, you know, they might not come across them otherwise. Another ripe catch 22 of the show. But look, I think this is a great link to kind of end on. It really kind of recaps a lot of themes that have emerged time and time again in terms of the whole, I think, you know, there's a deep desire for kind of disconnection and to want to kind of make things simpler. And like, just like we see with kind of trends in illustration, everything is always kind of a reaction to it, like, you know, what happened before. And I think, you know, in, you know, we've just undergone like such a huge transformation of things being radically connected. So it only makes sense that there's a trend towards kind of disconnection. And I think, yeah, I think so much that you kind of see in the mindfulness movement especially is kind of is is all that i think you know meditation pretty much is that whole kind of just being with yourself in that way and that's definitely not something that's in, that's kind of new in kind of any way like that's kind of what has always been you know prescribed well at least for the buddhists for the last 2500 years as kind of you know the the cure for some of the same you know ailments and this was before we had kind of screens or anything else i mean it's always you're there's always going to be this kind of um you know dissatisfaction that, that's going to kind of come to the surface and yeah like it's it's a it's a universal thing I think in so many ways. I think one interesting thing to note is um, perhaps the lack of time that we now spend just sort of left our own devices, well, for want of a better word, because not <laughs> devices, you know, um, is perhaps how that might affect um, art and artists. And and perhaps like, like does, do you think like certain artists became so good at what they do or sort of grew out of the fact that people just sort of had time on their hands? Well, I think that that's why this kind of resonates with me so much is, is because I think you know, to stretch this mentality a little bit further is that I've kind of come from this background where the approach is that, you know, you have to be working constantly and kind of constantly switched on and constantly being productive. And I think that that logic in some ways uh, works with social media by kind of being in it constantly up and constantly posting. And I think we've seen this kind of development recently, at least in the creative industry, where people have started pushing back a lot more about, you know, things like rush briefs and not being like 
constantly agreeable if something unreasonable comes through um, just because you are the freelancer and maybe there is a client in, in, in this circumstance. So I think that it, it kind of says a little bit to that and also talks about valuing your downtime a little bit more, which is, I think, a dialogue that we're starting to have a lot more now um, as kind of freelancers appreciate the downtime as much as as much as the uptime. Absolutely. I think I think where I get stuck is just that like so much of my downtime and what I enjoy is just like just constant, constant reading and the, you know, internet and portable devices makes that possible for me. Like I can just constantly read about any topic I ever want to and get stuck into these crazy topics like we have been today. Um, and the idea of that being a bad thing is is weird to me, you know, like I find that I think that's positive in the same way that someone might have gotten stuck into it or I would have gotten stuck into books or whatever when I was younger. That's really true because like there's I've seen a few tweets uh, kind of in recent weeks where people have said that, you know, you don't need to be defined by your occupation. And that was kind of the end of the tweet. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. But what if you choose to be? What if that's okay with yeah. you? Is that, that's, is that still okay? Because I, I don't know. I've, you know, this has been such an important part of my life. Maybe that guy's like a, I don't know, something really cr- Maybe he's like a janitor in a primary school or something. <laughs> no, and he's it, was, like- <laughs> it was like designers. It's like designers. You are, I, I have to find the tweet and maybe send it to you after this. But it was something like, you know, designers, you know, you are not, kind of a byproduct of your industry you are still just a human who designs and don't let that define you and I think that maybe there were you know kind of ulterior motives with this and they kind of had a specific target in mind but I don't know the question that I asked from that was like yeah but what if what if I want to be <laughs> because like it's what if I, it's like you know kind of like in your downtime you are obsessed with reading books in my downtime I just draw and that's just what I do to relax. So but that's also what makes most artists like successful artists. That's what makes them successful is the fact that they completely embody the the whole like. And I don't mean like in the way of having a personality that's like with the artiste. I mean that they they live for art and art is you know what helps them live. Like it's they they want to create all the time and that's part of the personality of an artist. And I think that that's that's what my kind of biggest conflict was with this was was that what's gotten me engaged with art and been constantly interested in art is because I've just been doing it for the longest time so um, I feel like a bit caught in the middle where I'm like I on one hand I'd really like to disconnect but on the other hand this is kind of what I love to do yeah tricky are we going to end the the segment again with the same thing like this Mm, is tricky tricky (laughs) it is tricky we should call the show Mm, tricky um, well, you know, that is something that could happen in our break. We're speaking of disconnection. That's what we'll be doing for the next two weeks. Um, we'll be you know, putting the mics down. We'll be going back to the drawing board and making some kind of new connections. And I think that is kind of important. I think it's important for the creative process as well. It's like that's kind of that's why they say, you know, the best ideas kind of come, you know, when you're in the shower or when you literally are doing nothing or when you have those kind of forced, you know, encounters where you have to do nothing or focus kind of on something else. And those oh, those opportunities are really rare, like in the shower, like, you know, you can't really take yeah your, jeremy your never showers that's exactly <laughs> i cannot be away from my precious precious phone but no like I, I think you know when you're forced to kind of have those um experiences um where you have to be separated from your device like that's when your brain rearranges itself and that's when kind of disparate connections are kind of made and i think um yeah it is a kind of an important process i just think like anything else it requires kind of a sense of balance and i think that's all that's the only sense of when it can kind of be negative it's like when it's just when it really kind of outweighs the potential benefit that you can get and that 
you know, and things are out of kilter. But Karan, thank you again for sharing this link and all of your thoughts that go along with it. Um, we will put that as well as everything else we've discussed on our show notes, which you can find at jackiewinter.givesyouthe.biz. Before we go on our short break, we will try to end the episode as we do every week um, with our feature that will hopefully have a better name by the time we come back. It won't. <laughs> right now, it's just, it's, it's just thumbs up, thumbs down. It's giving us a chance to either endorse um, or disendorse um, something. Um, you know, Dusseldorf, Dumbledore. Or Dusseldorf or Dumbledore, whatever we like. Um, Laura, do you have a thumbs up or thumbs down for this week at all? I have both because I've decided to talk way over time this week. Um, I My thumbs up. I have a general thumbs up for just like for wholesome activities because I had a really wholesome weekend and like, no, like, okay, so we've got a show opening at, this is my also sneaky way of mentioning the beautiful show that's opening at the gallery tomorrow. By the time this is out, um, the opening will have long gone, but the show will still be on. Um, it's called Paper Shrine and it's by, it's being curated by the wonderful Ben Jahani, who um, is a paper artist and he's got like 50 creatives from around the world creating paper masks that are all going to be displayed at our gallery, Lamington Drive. And I stupidly let Benja convince me to create one when I was in his studio a while back. And um, I, I am not an artist by any means. Um, and it was a really, it was really hard. Like I really didn't expect to struggle with it so much. I had like a full breakdown life crisis over it I just I really 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 struggled um but I did put something together and I'm really kind of happy with it and like Jeremy should probably buy it just to make me feel better um (laughs) but and then I went for a bike ride along the river and it was just so wholesome and it was a really nice weekend and so I'm gonna do probably not like I might do more crafting and bike riding in in the future um but my thumbs down and like oh I won't say any details because people might not have watched it (sighs) Handmaid's Tale Firstly, thumbs down because it's over and I have to wait like another year. And also just just thumbs down for that last scene. Just for anyone who's seen it, just you'll be with me. Karan, thumbs up, thumbs down from you. What do you got? Uh, thumbs up to my cupboard under the stairs, which I will now start using <laughs> more regularly for proactive pro- proactive time, as I like to call you, it. You can, or you could just you know, sit in that quiet space <laughs> alone with your thoughts. Just, just <laughs> Not sit, weird at all. Just sit and uh, yeah. If anyone comes looking for me, they'll know where I am. Um, You're gonna scare the shit out of out of your girlfriend when <laughs> she shocked her mom. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of doors in our in our apartment, so yeah, she'd be like, "Where are you?" And um, this is so basically burst out of the cupboard. Thumbs up for best hide and seek spot in the house. Um, and yeah, thumbs down probably to glass doors. Um, I was out uh, on our balcony the other day, and I had my my noise canceling headphones on. Um, and it was, it was like one in the morning. Um, and I was like, kind of like working away and uh, I don't know what I was listening to, but obviously it was engaging enough that when I decided to return into the living room, I walked straight into the glass door. Oh no. (laughs) And, uh, next thing you know, there's like blood pouring out everywhere from my nose. This is a serious incident. I'm lying on the floor. So my girlfriend's like, what have you done? And I was like, (laughs) no sympathy. Just what have you done? I walked into a door. um, And so basically for for about 12 hours, um, we thought I had a broken nose because I walked into a glass door. But then, uh, no, I went to the doctor yesterday and uh, no, it's not broken. You were just born like that. (laughs) Um, I was just born like that. It is slightly crooked in my opinion, but... uh, 
But yeah, that's my thumbs down glass doors. Beautiful. Jeremy, what have you got for us? My general thumbs up is for Sunday night TV being Monday night TV in Australia. So like, you know, typically most kind of, um, you know, HBO like does their kind of prestige TV on Sunday night. And I always found that when I was living in America, quite depressing because, you know, there's something sad about Sunday nights. And I don't know, that always kind of, you know, just like because you have to go to work the next day, Jeremy. Well, I have to go to work as well. We all have to work. Um, but I love like you know being in Australia. That Sunday night TV is Monday night TV, and like I think especially when you have like a really good show that you're into. Like right now, I'm really into Sharp Objects, which is the um, the Gillian or Gillian Flynn adaptation on HBO. And it's like I love it that it's a Monday night because it gets me through kind of you know when Mondays are hard. It's like it's like it's like oh I can get home and like I got that kind of show I can watch at night. I just think it's a much better idea. I hope the U.S. doesn't cotton onto it because I don't want them to move their prestige dramas to Monday night. Yeah, but then Tuesday night will be so exciting for you. No, I (laughs) like it the way it is, and that's where I'm going to leave it. Um, Thank you, Laura, so much for the links. Thank you. And thank you, Karan. If people want to find out more about you, either where you lurk or don't lurk, what are your internet presences of note that people can find you at? Uh, you can just check me out on all the socials uh, at Made by Karan, K-A-R-A-N. This has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast about creative project management and production and just making things happen in general. And we promise to have this line maybe rewritten a bit for the next season. We written? Rewritten. <laughs> rewritten. We are going to make it funnier as well. <laughs> Our producer is and has been Arij Noor. Um, Arij has been working with us for almost, God, since then, since day one for almost a year now. 48 episodes. This is our 48th episode and this is Arij's final episode. So we wanted to give her a wholehearted thank you. We're sorry that Bianca couldn't be here to give you a thank you on the pod as well. But Seriously, such a huge thank you. Arij like, has made us sound... Oh, decent yes, this whole time. If and we sound terrible for our next season, you know why. You know why. Exactly. <laughs> it was all a rage. Thank you, Rage. For those of you in Melbourne, you can check out her show, The Rap, which airs on Triple R Wednesdays from nine to twelve. I believe they might have some live streaming there as well. But yeah, if you want to, you know, hear more about a reach and the work she does, um, that would be a good place to start. So thank you again, a reach. You can find the Jackie Winter Group mostly on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y and Winter like the season. And please, again, email us with any recommendations feedback questions or comments at podcast at jackiewinter.com we really want to hear from you what you want to hear more of for the next season what you want to hear less of we're also on stitcher and spotify as well if that is your thing to receive all the links we talk about on the show each week in one neat little email you can sign up to our podcast newsletter at tinyletter.com slash jackie winter and archives of all of our shows and show notes can be found at jackiewinter.giveyouthe.biz Our theme music is by Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you love what you hear, you can help us out by subscribing on iTunes, rating us, and commenting too. It helps new people find the show. Details are on our website, again, at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks, but until then, bye, 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 bye. If you follow me, Just I, will, I will work you. I will work you. <laughs> hey, no, that's the dream. Can we cut that Dang. bit out? <laughs> <laughs>